Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're holding a pop-up panel discussion about getting economic growth to neighborhoods that need it. One of the city of Sacramento's big initiatives right now, come up with the right job strategy that boosts all of its neighborhoods, especially those with less than average employment rates and high poverty. Last year, the city launched Project Prosper, an initiative to spark a conversation among residents about boosting equitable and inclusive growth within neighborhoods. It also had a round of innovation grants, funding organizations that promised to support innovation and entrepreneurship in underserved communities. And in February, Mayor Daryl Steinberg announced a proposal that would spend $200 million over the next five years on economic equity in overlooked neighborhoods. That money will be the lion's share of the new measure use sales tax increase that voters approved last November. So how will that all go down? What will the funding be spent on, and who and where is it benefiting? How can the city's government, businesses, and nonprofits turn these efforts into economic growth and good jobs that boost people's incomes and improve the neighborhoods they live in? Join us for another cocktail conversation with some California groundbreakers who are giving it their all to boost economic growth in neighborhoods that need it and find out how you can help them with their efforts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And my name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the director of California Groundbreakers. And uh, tonight we're holding what we call a pop-up panel. And it's a discussion about getting economic growth to the neighborhoods that need it. Uh, we're looking at Sacramento, but I think this conversation could apply to the Bay Area and uh, California and uh, around the around the country as well. I think there's a, uh, I've re been reading a lot about uh, economic equality, economic justice, and a couple of events recently in the past year uh, really sparked my interest personally in having a discussion about this. So one of those events that happened was last March, um, I think many of you know here uh, in Sacramento, a man named Stefan Clark was shot by the police in the neighborhood of Meadowview in South Sacramento, and that made national news. It also drew a spotlight on Meadowview and other neighborhoods like it that aren't seeing the job growth, the business development, the economic equality, and educational opportunities as in other parts of town. So I thought of, I've been following what's been going on in terms of what the city of Sacramento has done uh, in terms of actions to Stefan and Clark's shooting to address economic inequality. So uh, one of the first things was I saw uh, they launched a round of grants, Rails Grants, and RAILS is an acronym for Rapid Acceleration, Innovation, and Leadership in Sacramento. And uh, those grants really focused, especially the second round that they launched in July, those really focused on supporting the development of entrepreneurship and innovation in Sacramento's underserved communities. So the city gave $1 million to 14 groups, and we have a few of those RAIL grants, RAILS grant winners with us this evening. And then another thing the city most recently announced, which I'm going to ask about, is uh, when Mayor Daryl Steinberg made his State of the City uh, uh, speech last week, he announced a, 
a proposal that would spend $200 million over the next five years on economic equality in, in the overlooked neighborhoods. And that would be a lion's share of the city's new Measure U sales tax increase, which we've uh, voted on and approved this past November. So the city is making some efforts. Um, but then I guess the question is, how much should local and city government do to drive economic growth? I mean, after all, they're, they're doing it with taxpayer money and they're often having other priorities. So um, it's a topic of conversation, not just here, obviously, like I said, but nationwide. So what really spurred this discussion to put it together uh, for this month was when it, Amazon announced uh, two weeks ago, I think on Valentine's Day it announced, that it was not going to build its HQ2 in New York City. Um, and that was interesting because uh, they were going to build it in Long Island City, and that's a borough in Queens, which is uh, not as prosperous as, say, Manhattan. Um, and the buzz was it was going to bring good-paying jobs, workforce training, educational opportunities to a part of town that didn't have many of them. But I think if you saw the news, there was immediate backlash from local residents and city officials that New York was, why are they giving $3 billion in incentives and tax breaks for one of the world's richest companies to build there? And would Amazon HQ2 really benefit Long Island City residents, or would it just bring more gentrification, displacement, than it would jobs, education, infrastructure? So obviously this is a, a topic that's bubbling up nationwide. We're gonna focus on it here in Sacramento and in the Bay Area, because we're connected to and, and affected by what's going on in the Bay Area. And obviously there's so many facets to this discussion. There's the housing aspect, the homelessness aspect. But to keep this to about, you know, ideally 60, to 70 minutes. Uh, we're going to focus ideally on groundbreaking efforts for job development, business development, and educational development for this discussion. So uh, I want to give a few special thanks before uh, the panelists introduce themselves. Well, we're having this event at Antiquity Midtown. It's a lovely space in Midtown Sacramento. So I want to give a shout out to our hosts and the owners of Antiquity, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose, for their continued support. Thank you very much. And they make excellent wine. Um, I'd also like to thank volunteers who are checking us in and serving us drinks, Nicole Grant Krieg and Rodrigo Ramirez. Thank you very much for your continued support as well. Also, a special thanks to a board member, J.E. Pano, I mentioned from Roostaller Beer for his support as well. Thank you, J.E. Uh, there's a couple of guests I want to thank as well for being here. You'll hear from them later. Uh, they're Rails Grant winners, Michelle Gladney of Girls Leading Our World and Mao Vang of La Familia. Uh, so thank you for coming to this event. Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio, who records the programs and puts them up online as podcast. And of course, the panelists, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for coming out uh, in the rain and taking time out of your busy schedule, too. So thank you, thank you all. Um, so I don't, I don't introduce the panelists. I let them introduce themselves because they know themselves well. And I always like to know a little personal something to make you more human. Um, so besides asking your name and your organization, um, I always I want to ask, um, since we're talking about economic development and job growth, what your first job was or what your most unique, quote unquote, or interesting, quote unquote, job was when you were younger and what was notable about it. So I'm going to start with the gentleman on my left. Good evening, everybody. My name is Nicholas Hastings. I am the executive director and founder, uh, co-founder of Square Root Academy, as well as Lab 7 Coworking. 
now, as far as my, I've had a lot of interesting jobs. I've I washed cars. I've been an engineer. I've been a butcher. Um, several things. But I would have to say my most interesting one for me and most impactful was um, when I was a janitor as a kid. I grew up my whole my family. We were we had a janitorial company. Our good amount of our our income was through garbage. <laughs> and that's because my, my grandfather was also, uh, he drove garbage trucks for one of the companies here in Sacramento. Ironically enough, I ended up being an engineer at that company a little bit later on. Um, so I'd have to say that was my most full circle job experience I've had here. Good evening, my name's Melissa Anguiano. I'm the city's economic development manager and I've been with the city um, this year 15 years. Um, I will say, well, my first unofficial job was also um, working with my family that did janitorial services in the evening in industrial buildings. Um, and then my first official job, um, ironically, the both the two kind of relate to economic development, which is where I ended up landing, um, was with a family-owned neighborhood small business um, that was just recently acknowledged um, in my hometown for uh, their 30-year commitment to the neighborhood and giving back to their community. I'm Tyrone Roderick Williams. Director of Development at the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency and Director of the Sacramento Promise Zone. Uh, my first uh, interesting job was one, uh, I lived every summer, um, I'm from Texas, and my grandparents uh, had a small farm and they raised produce for the farmer's markets on Saturdays. And my job was sorting okra on Friday nights and putting it into the boxes and loading the truck so that at four o'clock on Saturday morning, me and my grandfather would get in the truck and head out to the farmer's market to sell his produce. Hi, I'm Diana Tremblay with ICA Funga Jobs. We're in Oakland, California, and I'm our director of acceleration. And I would say my first job and my favorite job was a library assistant for Oakland Public Libraries because it feeds my introvert soul. Had to talk to no one, had to interface with pretty much no one. I just got to sort books and do those kinds of things. Hi, I'm Mariah Lichtenstern, and I'm here tonight representing Diversity Ventures. Um, I'm also the managing director of the Founder Institute Sacramento chapter. Um, I was a bit of a hustler when I was younger. So my first like official job, I think, was in insurance or at a library. Um, but at a younger age, I did everything from recycling to um, loan sharking. I would lend money to like my brother and stuff and you know collect with interest. So that was kind of, you know, my hustle back in the day. But um, I think what I enjoyed most um, that I remember and I wanted to do this as an adult. That was the plan to work my way through college like this. It didn't work out. But I used to do hair, nails, and makeup in my neighborhood. So I actually taught myself how to do like the acrylics and, and stuff like that. So it was totally illegal, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I like all these jobs, very entrepreneurial and, and business oriented, family business oriented. Thank you. Um, all right, so I have a question for each panelist, and I'm going to start with you, Melissa. Um, First of all, I want to say thank you for stepping in. We had Michael Jasso from the city uh, who got sick, so Melissa stepping in for him. But you're in economic development, so the questions still apply. So I had mentioned, you know, the Mayor Steinberg giving a State of the City speech last week, the $200 million uh, rails grants. So I, I wanted to see if you could, you know, flesh out the the efforts that the city uh, is taking to address economic inequality. Um, uh, 
most recently, and then if there's anything you can say about this $200 million proposal, like where that money would go and specifics about that. Sure. Um, so I think that our mayor and council have um, made it obvious through numerous commitments and discussions and approvals, their commitment to economic development. Um, about 10 years ago, we, ex if, most of, if most of us were here, we kind of saw how Sacramento suffer, suffered from uh, the downturn in the economy. And we knew that that was primarily due to our over-reliance on uh, government jobs and the real estate and construction um, industry. Um, we also at the time had lost a number of resources at the state level and um, at a city level were facing major budget deficits. And so a lot of resources went away um, in our ability to address uh, development and investment and support activity in, in the neighborhoods and corridors. And so we started to have this discussion last year um, before Measure U, before the Stephon Clark shooting um, around what does the future of Sacramento look like and what do we need to get there? And we knew that these conversations needed to occur kind of within three um, pillars. One is we knew that we needed to increase people capacity, uh, place capacity, and business capacity, and that those three functions were integral to kind of moving forward. We also um, had seen um, a Brookings Institution report that was commissioned by SACOG, Valley Vision, the Metro Chamber, and Greater Sacramento, kind of around the um, future of the Sacramento region, and uh, and and kind of confirmed some troubling trends that we had already seen. One of which was that even though, despite we had seen uh, uh, growth coming back to our economy, that uh, growth was still not very uh, diversified, that our tradable sectors and our industries still weren't very diversified. We also were seeing that uh, the wage gap and a skills gap within um, certain demographics in our community weren't equally distributed. And so uh, our goal um, last year in going out and having these conversations with the community was really to start looking at how do we start to address some of these things. At the completion of those discussions, our council approved a, a, a resolution that said that they were committed to moving something forward and that they wanted staff to look at what that framework looked like. So we went back to the table, we started to look um, at numerous plans that were already either underway or that had been completed and then we started to talk to stakeholders and partners. And we brought back to council a framework um, that outlined what we needed to do to get there. So we said, we obviously need a strategy and we need a plan. We need something that outlines priorities. We need things, um, and we need to stop planning. We need to start doing. And that was a big piece because we've been planning and we've been planning and we've been planning for years. And I think people are ready to start seeing action and implementation. And so for us, it was very important to say, this plan needs to be actionable. Um, but in addition, we said we're not just going to bring a plan that has the potential to kind of sit on a shelf or have no resources to back it up for implementation. So we said uh, we're going to put in place some infrastructure to ensure that what we're say what we say what we're going to do, um, we're actually going to do. How do we hold the city accountable? So there's two. There's a few things that are underway. One, we're currently commissioning um, a consultant team to work with us on developing this plan. Um, we're also simultaneously putting in place some pieces that will help us deliver this plan. One is the formation of an investment committee. This investment committee would be appointed by the city manager, 
um, would be at a minimum 15 people, we're thinking no more than 25, um, and would really serve as an advisory body to city staff. We, we've talked about what we've needed to do, um, and we, we got a sense of what we need to do, but we also know that recommendations need to come outside, um, from outside of the four, the four walls of City Hall. We know that we need to bring others into kind of building out what these solutions are. And so this would be a committee that would be made up of different representative groups from the community. They would serve as an advisory body to help filled some recommendations. And what kind of uh, groups? Uh, like, So we have, um, we're including at, at a minimum two members from industry, business, small business, workforce development, youth, um, commercial lending, housing, um, you name it, it's probably on the list. Um, this group we envision will work very closely with the Measure U Citizens Advisory Commission in ultimately bringing um, and giving us recommendations on what we can bring to council for uh, investment. The second piece is um, we said we need to adhere to some community indicators. What are we trying to change? What are we trying to move the needle on? And what does that look like now? And so putting in place some indicators that are trackable down to the zip code level, because right now we can say our unemployment rate is 4.3%, which is historically low, right? Um, but if you look at certain zip codes within Sacramento, that unemployment rate is 43%. It's a much different number when you start to look into census tracts and to zip codes. And so we want to include indicators that give us real numbers. And three, we need some metrics and criteria. We have an opportunity to invest um, tax dollars and public money in projects and programs to move forward this agenda. We need to set thresholds for what we expect to see. What does inclusive economic development look like? What are the safe rails that we want to include in some of our investments? And what are we expecting in return for our investment? All right. And then uh, my next question is for Tyrone. Uh, because I mentioned the rails grants that uh, were uh, issued in July. And the Sacramento Promise Zone was one of the recipients. Um, and I, I looked into the Sacramento Promise Zone because it's this... I think there's talk about the uh, promise zones and now there's opportunity zones of with the Trump administration. So I wanted you to give us a summary, like for many people who don't know what the Sacramento promise zone is, and I was one of them, um, what is the zone, where is it? And uh, what are the, uh, the goals that you're trying to achieve for this economic uh, uh, growth? And um, uh, I guess future current plans, I guess, that you have in store. Because I know when we were talking, uh, there is an announcement coming, but it, you can't announce it yet. But it sounds like there's stuff bubbling up. I'm trying to get it out of you if I can, because it sounds big. But well, tell us what you can. Well, in the Sacramento Promise Zone, there are always good things bubbling up. How long okay. has the Sacramento Promise Zone been around? Uh, so we've um, gained, first of all, the Promise Zone is a federal designation that came out of the Obama administration where he identified an opportunity for cities to compete for the, the designation. But the goal at the federal level was for agencies to reach outside of the silos and begin to work and talk to each other about having impact in geographic areas. And so uh, we uh, applied and um, out of 100 and I think uh, 97 applications, 16 were 16 cities were selected. California has the unique um, uh, 
opportunity because we have four promise zones. We're the only state that has more than one, uh, but we show them how to do it in California. So, uh, but the promise zone really is a geographic area that goes from the northern portion of uh, the city in Del Paso Heights, comes down through the river district and the rail yard, goes through downtown, out through a portion of Midtown, down Broadway into Oak Park, and then down into the avenue. So we go from the top of the city down to the lower portion of the city. And the goal was to look at how to do really two things, bring and attract federal dollars into the city and working with um, nonprofit organizations that are already doing work in that area, how could we strengthen their impact, attract resources for them both federally, state, um, and locally. So that's really what we've been doing since April of 2015. As of today, we almost have, we've been able to document over $150 million coming into the Sacramento Promise Zone through either direct grants or through leveraged resources that would not have been targeted into this area if first we didn't have the designation or we didn't add our support to that. So we provide letters of support when organizations who are working in the zone, who have an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, working with us in the zone. Um, and we work, most of the funding that has come in has not come to our organization or SHRA. It's been those organizations that are actually doing work. Our goals are to increase um, education achievement, focusing on, on early childhood reading levels, STEM, and high school graduation and career. And we were through the Promise Zone, our STEM initiative uh, received a RELS grant. I want to pause because Nicholas hasn't spoken, but he's on the stage. He was one of our great Promise Zone uh, STEM partners in the, what we're doing. So the education. Then the other is the jobs and economics. When we say jobs, we mean job training and job placement. Those two go together. It makes no sense to be trained for a job if you can't get a job, and if that job does not pay family self-supporting wages. The other aspect of that is our focus on our economic development, particularly at the neighborhood level in what we call our, our neighborhood business districts, or PBIDs, and looking at how to bring resources, training, and opportunity for business location, expansion, and retention. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Alphonse Wilfred, who was our first uh, AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer member. Well, he wasn't a volunteer. He got paid, but it was slave wages. I'm glad he's got a great job now. But his work laid the groundwork for what we have, one of the nation's only chromosomes that have what we call FIPO. It's our financial uh, organizations who come together and look at how to leverage banks and financial institutions and their resources. And so that's what we're about, and I'm glad to hear, you know, we, there are numerous plans, but in the Promise Zone, we're about implementation because what we do impacts people at the neighborhood level. Then the other areas that we focus on is health and nutrition, and then housing, which is the, the standard activity for the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency, but we're looking at uh, sustainable uh, activities such as electric vehicles, 
We've made national recognition, they'll have that for what we've done there, art and cultural expression and safety in addition to expanding affordable housing opportunities. So all of that is what we do on a daily basis. That's a lot. And because uh, I know there's, it's on a federal level, there's federal designations and federal grants. On a, on a local and state level, do you work with like the private sector, uh, just quickly I'm going to ask, private sector, local organizations? Absolutely. All over. Okay. Anyone who has money, we want to be our friend. We don't care whether you're in Washington, whether you're down the street at the Capitol, if you're working for a philanthropic organization who's looking to do good in the hood, we want to meet you, talk to you, but more importantly, work with you in investing resources into our neighborhoods. All right, thank you. So the, the next three panelists here, I think are really more on the, uh, on the entrepreneurial level, because uh, Melissa and Tyrone, you, you bridged the, the, the public sector and, and the other three of you were working with public sector entrepreneurial. So I wanted to start with you, Nicholas, because I know you're a two-time Rails Grant winner with Steamroot. And I think creating jobs in a strong economy, obviously a bedrock of that foundation is educational opportunities, which you're addressing. So I wanted, and then STEM skills. I, I work now in public school district. That's one of my part-time jobs. STEM is such a catchphrase. And uh, so I guess in terms of STEM skills and, and teaching it and, and securing good jobs, how STEM comes into play with what you're doing and how you see it um, building up economic growth in neighborhoods and, and building good jobs? Well, it's, it's, it's a part of what the new economy is going to look like. Most of the skills are going towards digital literacy skills, STEM-based education. And I believe in the next decade, 80% of the jobs here na nationally are going to require digital literacy skills, 80%. So it's important that while we're focused on the jobs of today, we also need to make sure that we're educating our current scholars for the jobs of tomorrow. The jobs of tomorrow and the education and the, the jobs that are here today as well. Um, but in order to do that, we need to make sure that this opportunity is afforded to all communities. I think for me, that's, that's one of the, the major pain points for me. It's a, a real focal point. So in the, I heard that you mentioned the Stephon Clark situation earlier in, in Metaview. Uh, that's actually where I grew up. Um, and that was actually one of my main motivators to giving back to the community. Because in several of these communities, they don't have these resources to actually thrive and to succeed in the STEM realm. And if that's where all the jobs are going, what are they supposed to do? So I think it's mostly, I think it's important that we make sure to reach the communities that are oftentimes overlooked to make sure that we're educating the entire population, not just the midtowns, not just the Elk Groves, not just the more affluent areas within the city and beyond. We need to make sure that we reach everyone. And so what are some specific things that Square Root does uh, to reach out? Just a couple of examples. Because I'm on your newsletter. I know there's something big coming up uh, very soon. But a couple, a couple of examples of, of where you've seen a lot of uh, uh, success recently. Well, we, we focus specifically on STEM-based education and experiences. And we do that through a number of ways. So I won't go into the nitty-gritty of all of them because it's, it's a lot. But our primary bread and butter is after school programming, specifically for Title I schools, almost exclusively. We don't go anywhere else. Um, after school programming, and we wrap it around a, frame, a national framework um, called Next Generation Science Standards. In all of our curriculum, it's, it's different from your traditional academia. And I mean that in the sense of it's not teaching theory just to teach theory. It's not teaching something just to check a box. It's teaching them actual school skills that they can implement and apply to their industry jobs. Uh, and that's been, we're able to do that because our curriculum has been developed by actual engineers and STEM professionals. 
so it has relevancy beyond the classroom. So we do it through, we have our after-school programming, we have alternative recess for some schools, we actually act as some school science piece because they don't have science teachers because they can't afford that. So we come in to help them and assist them with that piece. Additionally, we have our special events such as Hack the Park, which is my personal baby. Um, Hack the Park is a one-day outdoor STEM festival celebrating all things science, technology, engineering, and math. So we expected about 400 kids to come last year when we did it for the first time. We got over 1,000 scholars actually came out and participated in that event. Um, and we realized that in educating the community, specifically with STEM and in anything we do, we can't do it alone. So while we did that, we brought out dozens of partners. We had Intel, Powerhouse Science Center, SMUD, um, Amazon, plenty of people just to make sure that the kids can actually see themselves realistically being in these fields later, giving them an avenue and a job to aspire to. All right, and then uh, going on with the entrepreneurial side, Mariah, I wanted to ask you about um, being an entrepreneur in Sacramento, and, and one reason I, I brought Mariah on was as her, she has so many roles that she does on a daily basis. One of them is um, uh, leading a micro venture capital firm, Diversity Ventures. And I just noticed on the uh, our mission page, it states, we strive to close the funding gap that too often keeps founders from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds from getting on the playing field. So I wanted to ask you what the playing field looks like in Sacramento uh, particularly from your point of view and, and the people that you're helping, and, and the advantages and disadvantages for those founders who want to start and build a business in this city? Great question, um, and, and thank you for involving me. So what we do with Diversity Ventures, there's two sides. We have the fun side um, that's really focused on capitalizing on diverse perspectives, and then we have the not-for-profit which is more of the economic development we're sponsoring, the Founder Institute. Um, one of the things I'm very excited about is that Sacramento is the fourth most diverse city in the nation. And so obviously there's a, a lot of opportunity to capitalize on diversity and I've seen a lot shift to where people are coming together, um, a lot of the culture is changing. Um, the opportunities I see are like in programs that you've mentioned, like the Rails Grant. Another thing that the city did um, this past year is the creative economy. Um, pilot project, which we were actually a recipient of, and that contributed to us uh, producing the first diversity summit, where we brought people from LA, from the Bay Area, here locally, to really intersect um, and get to know each other and connect. So I think that there's a lot that the landscape in Sacramento offers um, that's unique, and it can be duplicated in other cities, but I think uh, one of the things that we have is a very rich talent pool we have a lot of colleges. We have UC Davis. We have the junior college system. We have CSUS. So we have, you know, wonderful education. One of the challenges is that our talent is leaving. So how do we retain that talent, right? Um, and then there's, you know, private schools as well. So we have a lot of talent, but we need to retain them. Uh, another thing is that we have the intels and, you know, we have the, we had HP and we had, so we have um, people in the community who have been very successful in entrepreneurship. So when we uh, were looking at Sacramento for launching the Founder Institute, one of the first things we do is mine for mentors. And we actually have um, more mentors in Sacramento than most of the FI chapters, and that's because there's so much rich talent here. The challenge was that they weren't connecting with the up-and-coming 
um, entrepreneurs. When I, you know, started my business here locally, I've been an entrepreneur since I was an undergrad, serial entrepreneur. But when I launched out again here, it was really hard to connect to mentors. So I started with SBA, with SCORE, but no one had... Um, really a perspective on scaling. It was more for like SMBs, mom and pop, which is great. We need those in our ecosystem. But by bringing Founder Institute, what we really wanted to do was connect some of those tech companies, those scaled companies, um, and have them come and mentor entrepreneurs. And that's not just limited to the people on our program. We do 10 um, pre-launch events before every semester um, this, that are free for the most part and open to the public. Um, so... Lots of talent, a lot of people who have been there done that. And uh, I think that the, another thing that's happening is that there's a culture shift where it used to be a little bit hostile to people from outside. Now I see a lot uh, more of embracing and collaborating. And that's part of our model. Um, if we have, a, a, you know, if I have an audience of 10,000 and you have an audience of 10,000 and we each have a, you know, 5% conversion rate, if we combine our audiences, we've, we're now doubling our you know, the, the conversion, right? Um, not the rate, but the actual conversion. And there was a sense, like I've lived here for 13 years. My, my mother retired here, lived here for decades. There was a sense before, it's like, no, this is mine and that's yours. And I'm not giving you any of mine. And now people are starting to wake up and see, oh yeah, there's, there, there is enough for us all. And let's bake a bigger pie. Let's, let's, bake a, let's make a pie factory. I was going to ask, uh, is there, a, I guess, in terms of like a geographic reach, you know, we're talking about neighborhoods in Sacramento that aren't getting the funding or yeah. may need more mentoring. Uh, is that also uh, changing, too, for the better? It see? is. When you see, like, what Nicholas is doing, when you see that SHRA addressing the economic component, when you see the creative economy aspect, and you see the city bringing in consultants to identify how to include, when you have it written, when you have diversity, uh, what, what are they called, the guiding principles they is written into the creative economy to rails to these new initiatives acknowledging not only that the disparities exist but the historical reason that they exist and you know being really intentional about addressing it that's where the opportunity lies the thing is now we're in execution mode and we have to recognize that it's that you can't expect someone you can't just give someone an opportunity and expect that without the resources, without the generational wealth, without the assets, that they're just gonna catch up because there's an opportunity. There's really more that we have to do to make up for the historical disparity. So that's the challenge, but the opportunity is that we're acknowledging it so we can actually do something about it. Great. And last but not least, Diana, I, I, I wanted to bring someone from um, the Bay Area and ideally Oakland uh, here because I feel like Sacramento and Oakland has have many um, um, things in common, a diverse population, uh, neighborhoods with a broad range of annual, average annual household incomes, and also the, the impact of that, that Bay Area effect. You know, it, it probably hit Oakland first and it's hitting east now to us. But I, I was interested in ICA um, fund because they their focus is creating jobs in underserved neighborhoods. And I think one of the businesses that they help nurture is Blue Bottle Coffee. So for any of you who are love coffee, that is like one of the, the very high end. And they sold, I guess, a majority stake for, uh, I don't know, nearly a billion? How much? 500 million to Nestle. So from a warehouse in Emeryville to um, 750 billion. So it can be done. But I wanted to see, you know, uh, and also Diana, 
I think, went to Sac State and lived here for a while. So she knows a little bit about Sacramento. So just based on what you've heard and what you've seen and, and what you're doing in, in Oakland, um, what what's creating jobs in underserved neighborhoods? What does the ICA funds? How does it do it? I guess briefly, uh, you know, maybe give a summary of a, a success besides Blue Bottle, a challenge for doing that, and uh, what you're focusing on right now that we could be interested in here. Yeah, sure. Um, so yes, I feel like I'm back home. I lived here for about three years. I love it here. I'm happy to be back today. Um, and at ICA, we do a couple of things. So we've been around for about 23 years. We're based in Oakland, but we work with companies across the nine Bay Area counties, which is a really big swath of space. Um, and we do that because we want to be able to reach as many companies as we can, but a majority of the companies we work with are in Oakland and San Francisco and, and now San Jose. And uh, we really focus not just on good jobs, but on wealth creation as well. So when we initially started, it was like, how do we get more jobs in inner city neighborhoods? We grew out of uh, Michael Porter from Harvard Business School's um, uh, competitive for initiative for competitive inner cities. And really, we're the last one standing still. Um, and I think that's a testament to Oakland itself and really the work that we're doing. And as I said, over time, we just we were looking at how many inner city jobs can we create to create economic development. And over time, that grew to how good are those jobs? Because you can have 5,000 minimum wage jobs, and those aren't great jobs. Um, to how do we help entrepreneurs understand how they can help their employees build wealth as they are themselves building wealth? Um, and that's really where we're shifting now, and that really is exciting part of our work. And the way that we do that is a couple of ways. We have an accelerator. Um, that we've had since 2016, and it is um, a labor of love for us, and really it's how many companies can we work with to really instill growth strategy, to really not think about just growing, but really thinking about scaling. How, can, how quickly can we get you to scale? What's the earliest intervention point we can get you so that you can scale, and you can create good jobs, and you can increase the quality of jobs over time? We also have an investment fund. Um, and when Blue Bottle was working with us, we did not have an investment fund. And we lost an opportunity to be able to um, win when they win, when they won, and really be able to reinvest that money into our community. So about five, seven years ago, 2012, we started an investment fund. It's called Fun Good Jobs, so that's the Fun Good Jobs part of our name. And really it was around how do we invest in companies that are, are really focused on creating good jobs. In our first five investments, we deployed about $2.2 million in capital. Um, and our latest investment, which has happened at the end of last year, we wrote another $300,000 check to a company who was really trying to figure out how do they grow their business um, and really still create really good jobs for their employees. And realizing that when you start a business, you cannot create the best jobs. You don't have the cash to do it. So really, how do we use the accelerator to instill good job creation and wealth creation in the DNA of the company, and really thinking about organizational health and development and culture, um, and really working with our workforce development partners to make sure those jobs are accessible. Um, because it's one thing to create good jobs, it's another thing to create good jobs that are accessible to communities who have not had access to those jobs. We also do a lot of work around capital strategy of who are the best capital providers for you. VC is not for everybody. Debt's not for everybody. It's not for every stage of business, so we really work with entrepreneurs to help them. And a majority of entrepreneurs we work with are people of color and women because 
those two groups, and being a person who is both of those things, have been frozen out of a lot of opportunity. And how do we help to unlock the potential in those businesses and in the potential in those entrepreneurs? And it's not about empowering them because they have their own power. It's how do we really unlock it and unleash it so that they can absolutely grow. What's an example, just briefly, of, of a company, maybe a, a person of color or a woman of color, or someone that you uh, started to fund or uh, you just watched them grow? Just curious what's a yeah. story recently. I would say on the investment side, has anyone heard of Red Bay Coffee? That is one of our investments. Um, and really we've worked a little while with them and really thinking about how do we help the founder, Keba Conte, really drive the business he wanted through scale, but also offer the, the wealth creation opportunities. And that was a given from the jump. He always wanted to create good jobs. He always wanted his employees to be able to share in the profits of the business and also share in any of the wealth creating opportunities. So I would say that's a success for us. Um, and I think as I'm thinking of challenges, being an impact-based investor is hard. Um, impact investing in general is hard, but especially being at our size, we're very small. Um, I would consider us a micro VC as well. And um, there's the impact the social impact and there's also the profit and how do you really balance those two things and what goes first? Um, is it the impact or is it the, or is it the financial return and how do you find folks who align with that um, who are willing to give you money to invest in other companies? We're a nonprofit so we have the pleasure, maybe, of getting money from foundations um, but of course that money is always tied to results and not every small business succeeds. Um, you have to have the space to be able to fail. And some businesses fail. Even when you put money into them, they fail. And uh, I think for communities of color and people of color in particular, we ha always feel like we have to be 1,000% better than everything else. We always feel like we have no chance to fail. So there's a lot of pressure and not a lot of understanding around that pressure. So uh, one of the challenges, we have to work through a lot of... Um, insecurities and just getting folks what they need so that they can reach over that hurdle and that we can eventually invest in them. And we're raising money right now. So if you know anyone who wants to invest in us, let me know. All right. Thank you. And I, I'm going to open up the mic to, to questions while I ask my next one. So for those of you, again, uh, if you have a question, line up there with the mic and, and we'll call on you. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask a question for everyone here. Uh, I had mentioned Amazon at the, at the top of the uh, conversation. Um, you know, pulling out of its deal with uh, New York City to build its one of its HQ2s there. And uh, I guess some people were saying this, the city, I guess in the state, gave them $3 billion in incentives. Um, and other people are saying that is a good trade-off for bringing 40,000 jobs, I guess that was expected, into a neighborhood that really needs them. And they would fund local infrastructure and workforce development and job training. So, um, you know, people had different opinions. I was wondering your opinion on how much should the public sector do? Uh, particularly here in Sacramento, I guess, or, or in California, um, what should they do and they should give to uh, bring companies to town and particularly in an area that, that would benefit from growth? Like, where's the trade-off? Uh, how do you balance that, uh, the, the, the taxpayer money with bringing in more money uh, for growth? Who would like to start? Okay, Melissa. Sure, I'll start that one because I'm... Um, That's your <laughs> it's come up in a lot right of now. conversations. Um, so I, I think um, the bottom line is that 
as a city, we need to determine what is our, again, what's our expectation and what's our um, expected return on investment and not necessarily looking at investment in terms of the number of jobs and those wages they pay and pro probably um, property taxes that are going to come back to the city or sales tax or whatever it is um, from a revenue generation standpoint. But really, what is, um, what's, what's the return back to the community and adhering to that and making sure that this business that's coming in um, is a partner in helping the city drive uh, those expectations. Um, you know, the, the, we've talked about a little bit about foundations and, and the benefit they can provide to a community. And that's one of the things um, Sacramento does not have the advantage of. We do not have a ton of Fortune 500 companies like you go to Minneapolis and they have 22 Fortune 500 companies um, and they have foundations and these foundations give back to education, they give back to arts, they give back to culture, they give back to um, you know transportation and mobility and all these things and we don't have that advantage here. And so um, I think in our mind we need to figure out how do we get there um, but how do we not lose sight of uh, what our commitment to our community is and what our expectations are and how um, how do we prepare our communities to take advantage of these opportunities because that's the key piece. And I think this is the, the catch-22 that we're often um, faced with in economic development and building wealth and building growth is that you need the jobs to create job opportunities, but you need the talent and the labor to track the jobs. And so figuring out where, how those two meet, but how you actually uh, build some capacity within the community uh, to take part in some of these opportunities. And Tyrone. Well, I, I think that um, a lot of cities are grappling or will be grappling with this same problem, particularly from the opportunity zone standpoint, which is new tax legislation that's designed to attract private investment into particularly underserved communities. But it's a two-edged sword, and you have to know how to wield the sword effectively. On one side, you always do want to attract investment and jobs. Uh, on the other side, you have to be careful of what the unanticipated consequences of attracting that particular employee or employer or job opportunities are on the current residents who live there. So I think that for us, um, w we are looking at ways to attract business and investment opportunity but look at the other side of that and kind of what, are, what is the community benefits discussion and what are the potential unanticipated consequences and how do we mitigate for those consequences without eliminating the, the opportunity. And what we've done and one of the things most common is the issue of the increase in housing. Once you bring in a major employer who starts paying good jobs, the first thing happens is that if there's already a shortage of housing, there's going to be a higher demand, which is going to push up the rent or the cost, and those people who are living there are going to eventually be forced out. So what we're looking at from the, the Housing and Redevelopment Agency is we're always looking at any investment that we make have an affordable housing component. And so we don't, we don't negate the fact that there needs to be housing at every level, but it's the folks who are at the bottom who generally tend to get locked out first. And so having those kinds of discussions and understandings, first with the community, uh, before decisions are made, 
and having that community benefits agreement in place as an essential part of that, then I think balances the opportunity and the consequences. And then the neighborhood will look at it as a positive thing, as long as it's negotiated properly, as opposed to the beginning of the end for neighborhoods as they've been known. And we've seen across the country, particularly even in San Francisco, what happens when you have major employers who come in, provide numerous great paying jobs, but the unintended consequences is it worsens the housing and affordability crisis. Yeah, it always seems down. It always seems to boil down to housing. No matter what discussion we have about anything in the state, housing is such a big, a big facet of it. Did anyone else want to comment on that, Mariah? Yeah. So it, these are great points that are brought up, um, and and I think that a, a lot of times that's where the pushback. Going back to the Amazon example, uh, you know, the, the concern is the gentrification. The concern is why are you giving so much money to a company that doesn't really need it. <laughs> um, but I think that entrepreneurship is inherently all about solving problems. So taking an entrepreneurial approach to addressing these problems, the things that I think of is, okay, if you're going to put $3 billion into creating uh, 40,000 jobs, I think you said, how about putting $3 billion into creating 40 companies that will hire 1,000 people? And then helping those companies to grow and vetting those so that, that, that we know that we're putting those resources in the right places. How about when we're attracting um, these new companies? I mean, when you have a brand new company that's a startup and you can't afford to, to give good jobs and going back to the wealth creation component, what you can give is equity. And that's how you get your ROI. And if we as a city if we as community organizations, as independent investors, um, if we are investing in opportunity funds um, that are, you know, in turn going into affordable housing, going into, well, you know, the rules are not out on startups, but they're kind of excluded right now. We'll see how that goes. I know you're going to mention something about those too, but um, if we are investing and getting equity in those companies, whether it's through a fund um, or, you know, as a private investor, as an angel, uh, then there there is opportunity for ROI. I think the point that you brought up that is really important is that, you know, when you're a VC, you know, if you're investing in 10 companies, the assumption is that five are just going to straight fail, just straight up. You ain't getting your money back on those companies, right? And you don't think that any of them are going to fail, but you know, like, when, you, when you're investing in them, that you're, you're believing that they have the potential to win, but you know that five are going to fail, three may return what you put into them, and then the, the rock stars have to return the multiple on the fund, right? Um, and so we have to give per people permission to fail. In the Bay Area, failure is considered experience, and that doesn't mean that you your goal is to fail, but you give per people permission to fail because they won't make those mistakes again. Um, and you have to give space to new people. So I think that when it comes to the question like Amazon, um, I think we should be doing a whole lot more to create new jobs. Amazon will be fine. Amazon will be fine. But there's so many entrepreneurs in ecosystems across America that need that money way more. And I think we just have to be savvy and entrepreneurial about how we deploy it. All right, and then yeah, I guess tying into the, I guess the private sector and businesses, particularly here in Sacramento, are they what are they doing to help uh, entrepreneurs and 
and small businesses grow in these areas. Because Nicholas Wisker, you had mentioned, you have a lot of sponsors, SMUD and Intel, so there's support there. Um, are are the in your in your view? Uh, this is for all of you guys. Are um, businesses doing enough to support other businesses here? Should they be? I mean, what's the private sector's role in in getting economic growth to those neighborhoods? Who would like to start? Nicholas. You know, it's it's hard to say without defining exactly what their responsibility is. You know, it's 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 up to they technically have no obligation to give back to the community, but I do feel like it is since they are a pillar here, they should be invested. Um, our partners, our partners in particular, have invested in helping our youth on several occasions, whether it's actually directly teaching them, speaking with them, inspiring them, or contributing or and funding their education through our program as well. So there are several different ways that the partners can help and that they are doing it, do, doing the good work, but it's hard to really say what that obligation is. Melissa. Um, this kind of gets to a little bit of kind of what Mariah was talking about and um, about supporting the, the small entrepreneurship community and then kind of where the city's at in terms of developing some metrics and criteria. And to the extent, I mean, I can certainly see a scenario where if we're going to invest some into something, whether it's a project or a program, that we have a threshold in there that uh, requires some level of commitment in utilizing small businesses, minority-owned businesses, entrepreneurs within the city, and um, establishing those type of requirements as part of our expectations when we're investing in something or when we're implementing something. Diana. Don't know as much about Sacramento, but I will use uh, the Bay Area. I think because we have so many big companies down there, a lot of them do interface with small businesses, either through their supplier diversity programs, um, which if you can figure out how to get connected to the right people, you can do it. One of the things we do is get you connected to the right people. Um, and even with the big corporations that have foundations, we see a lot of them wanting to do the work. It's just figuring out what the synergy is between your org and the small businesses and that organization to make sure that you're speaking the same language as them as far as the things that they want to continue to support. All right, we have a question at the mic. Hello. Uh, uh, my question is in talking about the importance of the youth connection in our communities and um, education and the needs that our youth face in this day and age. Um, I read an article in, uh, on NPR's website about school funding being tied to essentially property taxes, um, which I had known about for quite some time. But the, um, the study had pointed out that um, schools that are located in affluent areas naturally generate um, a great deal more money per student, um, sometimes uh, over $2,000 more per student than communities that aren't as affluent, and it's tied to the, the property taxes. Um, is there any... Uh, work that any of you are doing or um, policy advocacy at that level to ensure that when we're talking about economic equality that all children have the resources that they need to have from the public schools that they're going to, you know, school nurses, counselors, after school programs, good books, 
good desks, heating in the classrooms, good facility management. I know here in Sacramento, our school district is facing major economic issues. And, it, and I, I love the aspect of partnering with private industry to help get things done. But I also understand being a former teacher that you're faced, especially with challenging populations, with so many different pressures. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and about how you may be addressing that issue? Melissa, we'll start. Sure. I wish I could answer that question with a commitment and, a, and definite answer because um, obviously with what we're seeing with the SAC Unified School District, it, it is a little devastating. Um, but, I mean, these are all issues that have come up in our in the, over the last year and in other, in other studies that we've, and conversations that we've had. And um, I think our hope in our process is to kind of figure out what the city's role is in, in some of these issues. Um, and the mayors challenged us um, to really look outside of the core city services that we provide and look at kind of what our role is in, in bringing some of these um, important issues forward, like schools, child care. Um, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know what the city's role is, but I know it is a piece of this large framework that we're working on, and that we will probably identify what our role is, whether it's leading, supporting, facilitating, convening. Um, our mayor has been out there in, in strong support of the school district, and so I anticipate these conversations will occur. Youth is a very um, important uh, community for the city. We've um, rebranded and reorganized our parks department to the youth um, and recreational um, um, and outreach department. We have a youth um, ambassador that's working out of the city manager's office. Um, so it is something that is likely to come up in our plan, well, is definitely going to come up in our plan. And I think it's just a matter of what our role is and in kind of driving that initiative forward. And I wanted to ask, a, I guess, a, a question about that, too, um, because it seems like with some of the Rails grants that were issued uh, in, in the summer, um, many of them, if I remember correctly, were tied to STEM skills and, and getting into the schools. So maybe it didn't cover a lot. Maybe it kind of focused in on a specific thing in terms of training and, and, and job skills and, 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 and education in that aspect. Um, so Nicholas and Tyrone, I was wondering, I mean, obviously there's a lot uh, to, in the public school uh, system here in Sacramento that, you know, to address, but are you seeing efforts um, from the school district uh, with the city tie-in, your tie-in, where they're, they're trying to address that issue? Why, I know Tyrone, you raised your mic first, but why don't we start with you and then Nicholas. Well, um, our partnership at the Promise Zone really is a partnership between the two school districts, uh, both the Sac City Unified School District and the Twin Rivers. And so while our activities generally don't impact the entire school districts, or we, do, we have focused and have been very successful at partnering with them to go after specific grants. We uh, partnered with them from a uh, early childhood education grant uh, over a million dollars through the U.S. Department of Education. We partnered with um, 
the Crocker Arts Museum and the National Endowment for the Arts to have funding called block by block funding, which really targets our, our elementary and middle school uh, activities. Through our STEM activities, we've uh, offered two STEM camps, one in Sac City and the other in Twin Rivers, where uh, we provide 150 spaces for a three-week total immersion STEM summer camp at no cost, but we're targeting students in underserved communities. So I think our role is to find opportunities to create cross-sector collaborations to bring resources to those schools and school districts and communities that generally have not had those opportunities, whether it's early childhood education or STEM or art or anything else that we uh, identify where we can be and add value. We see that as our role, and, and we've been successful at doing that. Nicholas. So I can speak with regards to STEM only. Uh, there's definitely a huge desire for more STEM education in academia, but the issue is STEM is, you need a certain degree of education. You need a certain level of expertise within the STEM realm to effectively teach it. Uh, it's hard to convince engineers to leave their six-figure job to come back to a teacher salary. So we need to start investing more into our teachers, and then we would have more people that came back and actually came to these schools and gave these kids proper education. Now, I think with regards to uh, also including government in that, there needs to be conversations between academia, government, and the nonprofit organizations that are doing the work to effectively do this. Because everyone is working so fragmented to where it almost seems like efforts are being unnecessarily duplicated. We're doing work that we don't need to, and we could, that could be, be done more effectively if we all just work together. So I think <clears throat> there is a desire for school systems to get more uh, STEM-based education. There's also pushes from government, which is evidenced by the RAILS grant, to, be, to create a more educated workforce. And these kids are going to be that workforce. So everyone has their own solutions, but we're just operating a little bit siloed. I think if we work more together, we can remedy this issue. Thank you for the question. And we have another one at the mic. Oh, and Mariah wants to add something quickly. Well, I just want to thank you for bringing that up because it has so much to do with the, you know, the economic disparity that we talked about previously. And so much of it is systematic and institutionalized. And it's really hard to acknowledge. Um, and it's harder to address when we don't acknowledge it. But you talked about the income, um, the property tax, obviously, when you were talking about public school, and I did an essay back in high school about it, first essay contest I ever won. And so I had to research it. And public education was formed for us to have good citizens. But when you see it being tied to property tax, obviously, inequity is baked in. So if you look at movies like Waiting for Superman, we talk about disruption in tech. Education has to be disrupted. And that can be really painful. I have a sibling and her best friend who are both in education. My sister's getting her EDD, and she's all about public schools. And I'm like, but wait a minute, isn't your son in a charter school? Yeah. Uh. You know, my daughter's in a public um, charter homeschool program, and we have the privilege of doing that. But for parents who are working all day, they can't do that. But what we really need to do is rethink and disrupt how education is. And it, there's a lot of um, systems from the, you know, the justice system, the education system, uh, you know, that, that need to be rebuilt. And we just, I think we're at a point where we just have to admit that just like journalism is not like it used to be, Blockbuster is gone. I mean, some of our cherished institutions fundamentally need to change. All right, thank you. Next question. 
Hi, uh, I'm kind of going to echo the same sentiments um, about um, how we get economic development to our neighborhoods. So I wholeheartedly agree with you know this challenge that we're having with neighborhoods that don't have the, the higher property values to fund um, local initiatives or things that happen in the communities that you know that also tie in education. But um, you know I'm, I'm with a group that uh, represents a neighborhood in Northgate and Gardenland. And uh, we don't have a lot of resources coming to our neighborhood. Uh, we're not a promise zone designated area. Um, we don't, we, I checked the rails grants thing. We'd have no grants coming our way. Um, and you know, this is a neighborhood that's been challenged for a long time. Um, and right now we, there's a group of individuals, um, volunteers just in the community coming together to try to establish like a business corridor group that can try to bring in resources or something. Um, but we want to know how to get access to those resources and how to, from like the community resident perspective, because um, we're not with an agency. Melissa. Yes. Um, so um, I talked a little bit about this process we're going through to develop this plan. Um, but what I didn't mention is there are some things that we're starting now that we're not going to wait for this plan to be completed. We are in um, process right now to establish our uh, next fiscal year budget, which starts in July. And we have um, an ask in place that may be actually coming before uh, June. Um, that would establish these neighborhood action teams. Again, we recognize that we've lost sight of some of the corridors and some of the neighborhoods, and how do we get resources back? So this neighborhood, these neighborhood action teams would be, um, would be um, a, a coalition group or a collaborative group made up of community development, economic development, and neighborhood services. And the thought is that uh, we will focus back on some of these older commercial corridors, um, prioritizing the ones that haven't seen investment, identifying some actions um, and some quick implementations that we can move forward to address some of the issues, and then uh, looking at how we, um, how we create the conditions along some of these corridors that make it easy to bring investment in, to establish business, um, looking at uh, zoning and um, planning entitlements that uh, or create by right zoning in some of these corridors that will allow some easy streamlined processes to move forward. Thank you. Anyone else? I think um, what Melissa just said is a great part of a solution, a great part of the solution. I think one thing that also needs to be done is the government, the, the, the people that are responsible for taking care of the people they need to come and talk to the people, understand what their actually needs are. Don't, don't come and talk, to, talk at them. This isn't a lecture. It needs to be a two-sided relationship because you never know. You could be coming in and fixing the wrong issue. Um, Metaview, for example, you know, people are coming in and talking about the beautification of it, but it's been a food desert for the past few decades. Yeah, what good is it to have pretty sidewalks if you have nothing to eat? So I think it's very important that we're actually listening to the people that we're supposed to be serving and uh, getting that, uh, the voice of the people out there. Thank you. Next question at the mic. Hi. Um, real quick, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Caleb Clark on the soundboard. He was one of the first round of Rails grantees with Rocket Department. He was hiding over there. Anyway, um, my question, and it's, it's kind of broad, no one specific asking for, um, 
so when you're looking at entrepreneurial mindset in communities, all of you kind of have a little bit of background where it's it been instilled with your families. Um, how do you kind of bring that into neighborhoods where people don't have so much access to that? And how do you address um, just kind of the the differences? Um, so you know you've got entrepreneurial superstars like Mariah over here who've just been, who just kind of take off and there's a fire in her and she's got serial, you know, businesses going on versus people who maybe have potential but have never really seen it and haven't had those experiences. How do you, how do you reach everyone or how do you, how do you kind of tailor a message um, for that? Mariah. So thank you. My last name does translate Lighted Star, but let me tell you, honey, I struggle like everybody else. So I have failed forward and I, I, you know, I just turned 40 and I feel like I'm just getting started and people don't realize what happens behind the scenes. I mean, you look at someone like Elon Musk who's sleeping on couches after selling PayPal. So, you know, the entrepreneurial life is a certain kind of crazy. All right. But um, I'll say this. I didn't grow up with really exposure to a lot of entrepreneurship. Um, my stepdad at one point started a company and failed, and I couldn't really tell you much about it. Um, then he went into trucking. My mom was a nurse. My first exposure to entrepreneurship was when a friend who worked for Solomon Smith Barney at the time uh, gave me Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Cashflow Quadrant. First one wasn't that interesting, but Cashflow Quadrant was fascinating. And that's when I saw that entrepreneurship could be a tool for economic development, et cetera. Um, the challenge is this. Okay, when I was an undergrad and I started my first business, knowing I was self-employed, not truly on the business or investment side, I took my student loan refund and bought the equipment um, that I needed. I went and sold a contract, got half of it up front to buy the rest of the equipment, and then delivered. And that's how I got started, right? But you know, there there was no other startup capital. There was no rich uncle. There was so I think there's so much entrepreneurship. I'm from the Bay and we have this term called get a rigging. You know, and it's like basically engineering. Like when you don't have what you need, you figure out a way, you know. And like I said, hustler, baby, you know, you figure it out, right? And the problem is when you look at a lot of successes, whether it's Jay-Z or Easy e or, you know, the, these uh, pathways that are, you know, shown to us, um, people start sometimes investing in their companies, doing what's available. And unfortunately, there's not a lot available. So I, I don't think it's that... Um, there's, I think that the biggest challenge really is access to mentorship, access to capital, and you know access to the talent and the, the systems to help you succeed. That's why I'm I'm investing the time and effort into the Founder Institute and why I love working with founders so much. And part of it is just vicarious that I can help so many you know people succeed and partner with other organizations. But you know. I must say, like, the biggest challenge that I hear from every single founder, and, it's, and sometimes money is not the solution, but the biggest challenge is if they, if they ever want to scale a company and they want to raise venture capital, no venture capitalist is going to take them seriously until they raise friends and family, until they get angel investment. Angels are investing their own money. They don't want it. They want you to scale and have a team and a product in the market. Well, how are you going to get that MVP when your community doesn't even have engineers who know how to code? And, and you, you don't have, you're not at UC Davis in the PhD program networking with, you know, technologists and computer scientists. That, those are the challenges, right? So where are you going to get that first 20, 30,000 to go hire a development team, you know, or, or to, 
you know, have them invest in you. So, you know, these are the, this is where closing the funding gap is such a passion to me, and I have some ideas around how we can do that on the nonprofit side. Um, to just to close that gap, and I think cities can do a lot. Toronto gives all the graduates of the Founder Institute $5,000. That goes a long way. California has an $800 minimum tax. Why are we charging companies that are pre-revenue to get started? Going back to your Amazon example, that's where we should be helping nascent companies just to get off the ground and go. You know what I mean? And so I, I think that that's a big thing because people learn fast. The, the average millionaire was a C student. Okay, so it's not rocket science, but it, it does take a city to raise a startup, as we say with FI. Diana? I would say that um, exposure is great, but entrepreneurship is not for everybody, though. It is not at all. You have to be, as Mariah has demonstrated, a certain kind of person. You have to have a lot of grit to do it. Um, and not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur, although entrepreneurship is the fastest way to build wealth outside of having a regular job. So I think there's like the, who are the entrepreneurs who are out there filling it because they really wanna do it? Who are the potential up and coming entrepreneurs that just need exposure through like internships at an organization like mine or internships at other small businesses? And who are the people who wanna be close to entrepreneurs but that don't want to be entrepreneurs, but that can help drive that entrepreneur's vision forward by being not necessarily a visionary but like the operational person, which is my dream job. Like, I don't want to ever be an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's so much risk. I'm risk averse. If you're risk averse, entrepreneurship is really hard. So I think it's like there's this gamut, gambit of entrepreneurship and how do you either support an entrepreneur who can lead change in your own community to spur economic development or how can you be that entrepreneur? And it's a choice that people have to make. And sometimes you get in, you fail, and it's like, I don't want to do that ever again. Or you're like, I'm absolutely doing that again. So how can we support both sides of the coin? And Melissa? Um, that's, I just kind of piggyback on, on um, both of those comments. I think it, it does, it gets to kind of um, broaden, broadening this definition of what entrepreneurship is. And um, broadening it such that, other people can relate to it because there are people that are entrepreneurs but might not consider themselves entrepreneurs and maybe they just have a side hustle or they're just trying to get by um, and make ends meet. And so um, broadening that definition so that it applies to a broader audience, um, I think sometimes when we say entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs, and there's this, um, we're thinking VC, capitalist venture. And so making sure that it's something that means different things, and I think that's okay. And I, I, yes, I was going to say, when I looked at the, the Rails grants that went out um, in July, um, I, don't, I don't have all of them listed. Although, is it Michelle Gladney, is she here? Okay, I guess she's not here. I did invite all the Rails grant um, uh, people to come and just talk about themselves. But but one organization that came to mind is the Power of She, which was a Rails grant winner because um, Tiffany Sharp, the founder, um, works with uh, I, women particularly of color to be entrepreneurs, but, but, but very local businesses. It's not necessarily tech because I think there's a lot of focus on technology and, and Founders Institute and Startup SAC. It's not for everyone. So I noticed with the grants, there is there were some that were like, starting a small business or a cell phone business because it's, uh, and then Roderick and, I'm sorry, not Roderick, Tyrone, and then one last question for me because we're going a little over time. Okay, I, I think that um, 
we need to, at the early, at the high school and even middle school level, begin to talk about the idea of business and whether you have a skill. If you know how to cut grass and you have an edger, you can start your own landscaping business. If you know how to make cupcakes, you can start your own cup. You know, if you know how to, where I came from in Houston, we call these cold cups. And it was making Kool-Aid, putting extra sugar in it, putting it in the freezer, and selling it as like a popsicle in a cup. And, there, and we didn't have Kool-Aid stands. We had cold cup stands. So every night you fill up all your Kool-Aid, freeze it, and, over, and then you sell it for 25 cents. You don't have, you can start early. You can, and I think presenting things, you can cut hair. You mentioned do nails, you know, whatever, wash the dog. It doesn't, you know, there are numerous ways to enter into entrepreneurship and support the idea of broadening your thinking. Not everybody's gonna be into technology, but the truth is most people have a skill or a passion that if they took just a little bit further, could open up doors of opportunity that could lead to a business if that's the route in life they wanted to take. But you gotta be encouraged early and just start with what you have and oftentimes that's the foundation for what you can have. Okay, so much I wanna ask, but I'm gonna ask one last question so we can so we can wrap it up, unfortunately. So I'm going to go down uh, the line and ask uh, a question I, I always like to ask at the end of every event about on the individual level, what can, what can I do or what can we do as individuals um, to help boost economic growth to the neighborhoods that need it as a, as a consumer, as a, well, as a taxpayer, or as someone who really is a, a passionate supporter? So on an individual level, um, recommendations. Nicholas, let's start with you. Huh. All right. <laughs> I would say find something you're passionate about. Find something you're passionate about and either you succeed in doing that thing or you go and volunteer to push that thing forward. If you love dogs, SPCA. If you love reading to kids, there's organizations where you can do that, where you can do that too. If you love STEM, there's organizations you can support that do that as well. But go out and try to actually do something. There's a lot of people that, and this isn't to judge anyone, but a lot of people talk about solutions. A lot of people will talk about the problems and the things that are wrong with the world. But if you actually want to be a part of the change, you have to get out in that same world and do something about it yourself. Melissa. Um, well, it's a wow, tough question. Well, it's it's tough, such a tough but question. It is a tough question. I, I think part of it is um, to really deliver on the change you want to make. And, and not a lot of people know this story about me, but I, from an early age, knew I wanted to be in the public sector and I wanted to work for local government. And that's not a career that most kids think about when they're growing up. But I saw the impact it had on my family. And my um, when my father was laid off from a steel manufacturing company, he needed he needed a job. And, um, and so he started a landscaping business. And within a couple of months, our backyard was a nursery. And it only took um, you know, a couple weeks later or a month later for someone to call and report us to the city. And I remember 
my, and I'm going to get choked up here. I remember my family was super um, anxious that they were going to have a, a coat inspector come to our house. Um, and so I kind of overheard conversations and I knew that they'd be, um, that they were really worried about this. And so um, this code inspector came and he was the nicest person and really outlined what my family needed to do to get into compliance. And I just remembered thinking, I want to do that. That makes a difference, right? And so I think not losing sight of what your passion is, but um, no, but doing it with the intentions of making an impact, and I think that's really important. Tyrone. I can't follow that one, y'all. I just, but I can say, from my perspective, uh, I am relentless at finding resources. In the position that I have, and I value my opportunity and the cross-sector uh, connections that we have made, so I am shameless because I believe that through my actions, I am making an impact, and I am a cause of transfer, positive transformation. And so that's where I go. Do what you can with what you have while you can. And that's what gives me the greatest sense of purpose and achievement. Diana. You stole my answer. It's going to say exactly that. Um, I think it's really understanding, again, what other panelists have said, what you're really passionate about, knowing that we are all incredibly busy with our lives, our family, our kids, everything, our jobs. And just finding the little bits of time that you have to volunteer or even read more about something that really helps you understand what's going on in your local community and how you can get back. We work with a lot of mentors who are professionals who volunteer their time. And it's like two hours a, a month. And that is how they give back to the community. And that's how they help entrepreneurs who usually don't have that kind of mentoring support get help. And I think I just, I have found my, my thing I'm supposed to be doing in life. So I use, again, all my resources I can do to make entrepreneurs of color and women's journey easier. And Mariah, last word. I love this um, little kind of Venn diagram that I rediscovered the other day. And it has like, it has uh, passion, what you're good at, what people will pay you for and what's needed. And then there's like, it says what the intersection of different ones are. And when you get them all, it's like that sweet spot. Um, I mean, there's certain things that I mentioned. I love doing hair and nails and everything like that. But um, I think I have a higher purpose. Not that that's not purposeful. Um, but I obviously was called to do something else. And I find a lot of times that things that I've been challenged with lead me along that path. And you talked about intersectionality, being a woman, being a person of color. I have a unique perspective. I also have unique privileges. And so, you know, for me personally, I'm marrying those things to solve what I believe is the civil rights, you know, of our era, which is this huge economic disparity that can literally destroy our country. Um, and so, you know, what I would say, like, I think everybody has their thing, and I, I believe it's going to be re revealed to you. But for me, what I would impart is that I know that we are in a crisis where the average American does not have five hundred dollars for an emergency, um, where fifty percent of Americans are paycheck to paycheck. You know, Oprah came out and, and she had this whole show and it was an expose, and, but it, it relieved people to be able to actually acknowledge it because there's so much shame around it. And we shouldn't be ashamed to say, no, Amazon, you're doing all right. We need help. No, banks, you're doing okay. We need to bail out. You know, because our, our country can literally collapse and people don't know how to budget. They don't know how to use credit. 
And that was something I had a lot of angst about. It took me years, even after being a financial planner, still didn't know how to do it. And so I think we need to get to the foundation of really educating ourselves, educating our kids, encouraging them to be entrepreneurial when they can afford to fail and have a safety net, even if it is a paycheck to paycheck, just giving them that $50 or whatever it is um, to go out and experiment um, and making sure that they have those core competencies and really advocating um, for you know the changes that will make a significant difference. Social Security is the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. Why aren't we putting you know the stuff that's coming out of our paycheck into long-term care, insurance, health care? I mean, I think that we all kind of need to get a little more woke and conscious. And then when we have those safety nets and securities in place, we can pursue our passions because when you have scarcity, you're not helping each other. You're not pursuing your passions. You're surviving. So... You know, find your own thing, but I think we also, the big part of it is working together, which has been mentioned, to make sure that collectively as a society, we have what we need to really thrive and pursue our passions. All right. I feel like there's so much to cover. We just scratched the surface, but it was a great conversation, and, and I, I do look forward to seeing what y you and your organizations do um, in getting economic growth to neighborhoods uh, in Sacramento Bay Area. So thank you very much, panelists, for coming and talking with us. And thank you also for coming out and listening. And um, uh, have a good night. It's a very great discussion. And I uh, just want to say thanks to all of you. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation was held on February 27, 2019 at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. A special thanks to Sharon Wilson and Marcy Jose at Antiquity for hosting this event, and to J.E. Pano at Roostaller Beer and Gabriella Leo at Burley Beverages for donating the drinks. Also thanks to our volunteers, Rod Ramirez and Nicole Grant Krieg, and to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for helping us put this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.